Let's pray for Taryn as he preaches. We're in this beautiful series on identity, and um, it's an amazing uh, opportunity to see what God is doing in our midst. So, Lord, we just, we thank you for Taryn. We pray for your anointing on his words, Lord, that Holy Spirit, what he says would land in our hearts, Lord. We pray that our eyes, our ears, our hearts would be open, Lord, to what you are doing as he ministers to us in Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, thank you, that was very kind of you. Um, usually birthdays don't come on the day you're at church and you're preaching. Usually you just got the deluge of WhatsApps, like, oh, <laughs> but it's actually been pretty cool. So many face-to-face um, happy birthdays. I'm one sh- year short of 50. So um, my kids, for some reason, like, dad, one year to go, they're all like, some of them wrote 50 on their cards, like, that's bigger in their minds than 49. <clears throat> my favorite card was from one of the kids who said, Dad, for some reason, all my spe- special memories of you, not mom. <laughs> <coughs> so if you, if you um, are a parent, you know that definitely the dad is like the less spectacular parent for children. So I just claimed that one moment <laughs> in my parenting career where I was more than just not the mama. <laughs> so we're busy um, doing a series on identity, identity in Christ. It's one of the big questions of our culture, identity. Um, I was just busy watching this James Webb, um, there's this Netflix um, ser- series that's come out, film about James Webb Telescope. It's the most like uh, clear photos we've yet got of the universe. I'm just amazed by the size of the universe, and they present the photos to the leader of NASA, and he says, when I look at these photos, he says, I find myself asking, what am I? And as he said that, I remembered Psalm 8, where King David is saying, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you put in place, I ask myself, who are we that you care about us? And it was like hearing, you know, this NASA guy saying exactly what King David said, because it does blow the mind. The universe is so massive, we are, the bigger it gets, the bigger we realize it is, the smaller we are, and then like, are we kidding? What is the value of our lives? And then I flashed back to the day Eli was born, and I held in my hand three kilograms of bundle, and was more than all the diamonds in the world in my hands. And I, I, I still remember looking up at Table Mountain through the window, the window of the hospital, and thinking, this little life is infinitely more valuable than that mountain, not because it's bigger, but because it's mine. It has, he has my image. He's my child. And um, something of that in the heart of God. Yes, he made a universe. And the philosophers, the best answer, why is the universe so big? God was trying to make something as awesome as himself. <laughs> um, but he values not size, he values his own image. And, um, and this identity in Christ series, it gives us a powerful sense of who we are. Because it's the question that confronts us every day of our lives and you look in the mirror like, who, who are you? What am I? And our culture has noticed this question and it's gone pretty nuts in many of the answers it's churning up. And um, so good to come back to what the scriptures say. Ephesians chapter one is the passage we're going through very slowly. Let me read some verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world 
to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be a, to adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And uh, notice that little phrase, in his sight. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy in his sight. Paul describes what we are in God's sight. That's what the series is about. The gospel, the message of the good news, tells us who God is, but it also tells us as we look into, gaze into the face of God, we see our own reflection in his eyes and we get the answer to the question, who am I? Who am I? And then I love that little line right next to it. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. It's the most powerful little two words in Ephesians chapter one. That when he looks at us, we are not irritants as we often feel. We're not worms. We're not specks of dust in his universe. He looks at us in love. We are in his sight. And we are, and he looks at us through the eyes of love, it should blow our minds that the God who made the universe has you in his sight. And then when he looks at you, he looks at you through the eyes of love. And then, and then this idea that we're adopted to sonship, uh, you know, it, it goes on to say that effectively God loves us as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus is the eternal son. We're adopted sons and daughters but we're in the son he loves. It's, it's though, it's, if I could use an analogy, maybe you've got a family, you have a, your first child is a biological child, your next child is an adopted child. The adopted child is as loved as the biological child. We are, Jesus is one of a kind son, but we're adopted into that same family where the love the father has for the son, he has for you, he has for me. And then the words, so important, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him. The idea here is that when you respond to the gospel, the call of God summoning you into his kingdom, that as you respond to that, you get repositioned. There's only two kinds of humans, according to the New Testament. There are humans that are only in Adam, and then there are humans through the gospel who are now in Christ. In Adam, meaning, you know, positioned in Adam and Eve and the lineage they've left for the human race. And then we have the privilege of being repositioned in the new Adam, the last Adam as the New Testament describes him. Jesus Christ, the perfect human who succeeds where Adam failed. And we are in Christ. We're positioned in him like an orphan child who is adopted. That child wakes up in a new position, so I want to tell you the story of Mephibosheth. Consider the person next to you, Mephibosheth. <laughs> if you can get the words out your mouth, Mephibosheth. <clears throat> and uh, it comes from 1000 BC, and it's in 2 Samuel. I'm going to pick up little ideas from 2 Samuel 4, 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 16, and 2 Samuel 19. So the, the big idea here is that there is a king called Saul. He's on the throne the throne is gonna to go to his son, Jonathan. You know, that's where it should go. David is actually God's chosen king. Saul is gonna to fall to the side. David's gonna be true king. Jonathan already suspects this, and he doesn't mind that actually his buddy is gonna be the next king. 
David and Jonathan love each other. They make a covenant with each other to treat each other's children and grandchildren as if they're their own. It's a beautiful story. Jonathan has a child. He names the child Meribal. Meribal means one who contends with the false god of Baal. The neighboring kingdoms, they worship Baal. This guy is gonna push back the darkness. He is, in a sense, the future. He's on the throne. I mean, he's lined up for the throne. But then this tragic story of Saul and Jonathan dying in battle. Jonathan, son of Saul, 2 Samuel 4 verse 4, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name, his new name was Mephibosheth. Mirabel gets renamed Mephibosheth, and then the nurse hangs out in a town and puts him in a town, and uh, he grows up in the shadows. No one even knows he still exists. So I wrote this pretty cool description of the story, and then I uploaded it to chat GPT, and I said, improve my narrative. And it turned back an improvement of my narrative, which I'm gonna read to you. Here we go. In ancient times, amidst the grandeur of a royal palace, lived a young prince born to Jonathan, Jonathan, the valiant firstborn son of a king, <clears throat> a man whose bloodline carried the promise of a throne. The palace walls echoed with the laughter of the prince as he reveled in the embrace of the finest care the kingdom had to offer. In his tender years, Meribal um, had the palace as his playground. A devoted nurse attended to his every need, her watchful eyes guarding him against the shadows of any harm. Her presence was like a soothing balm, a constant reminder of safety. <clears throat> but alas, this shattered when the Drumbeats of battle reached a crescendo and news, heavy as a storm-laden sky, arrived from the distant lands of Jezreel. In the thunderous clash of swords and the echoing cries of war, both his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan met their untimely fate. The kingdom quaked with sorrow and the young prince's world crumbled. In the midst of chaos, his nurse, her heart a wild flutter of desperation, gathered him into her arms, a precious cargo of life she would protect at all costs. But in her hurried flight, a misstep, a heart-wrenching stumble, and the prince tumbled from her grasp. His delicate body struck the ground with a poignant thud. The fall broke his back, leaving his legs lame, limbs that no longer bore the weight of his dreams. His name, Mary Bell, whispered with promises of a future reign, underwent a transformation that mirrored his altered fate, Mephibosheth, one who faces shame is its meaning, a name as heavy as a stone upon his heart, as bitter as the tears he shed for his shattered hopes. In the shadow of the palace walls, his, prison, his presence slipped into obscurity like a forgotten melody. A small, quiet town became his sanctuary, a realm where his name and legacy were all but swallowed by time's relentless march. Thus, the tale of the young prince, once cradled in the arms of grandeur, was rewritten by the quill of adversity. Go chat GPT. <laughs> That's the story in the Bible. The story in the Bible that most people haven't read about Mephibosheth, but there he is in the Old Testament. And it's a story of loss. 
It's a story. I mean, he loses everything. He loses his, his dad, his granddad, loses his palace, loses his hopes, loses his mobility, loses safety. It's a redefining experience. It's one that breaks him. And it's a picture of what happens in so many of our lives, at least some point in our lives, where we experience loss, where um, something happens that redefines us, that pours out such disappointment or agony or pain or loss upon our lives. And even we might have to actually talk to a therapist to realize that the feeling of shame, the feeling of unworthiness and um, and they're going into hiding. I mean, there are many things that bring this in, in our lives. It could be the death of a family member. When I was 16, my father died of HIV AIDS, one of the first people in the country to die of that disease. That redefined my whole sense of myself. Or maybe a friend or a partner who dies. Could be abuse, whether physical, emotional, sexual. Could be going through a traumatic event like an accident or an assault. Maybe it's the end of a significant romantic relationship or even a marriage. Maybe you're diagnosed with chronic illness. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you face severe financial difficulties. Maybe you've, um, uh, your reputation has imploded. Maybe uh, you face bullying or social exclusion. I call it being detribed. Once you were part of a group, Something happened and you're out the group and that group now looks upon you with suspicion or accusation. Maybe you've experienced betrayal or infidelity by a close friend or partner. Could be addiction, whether related to substances, gambling, other behaviors. Maybe you've experienced discrimination or prejudice. These are redefining experiences. You could have been heading this way and then something comes upon you on one day and your life is redefined by this, this setback, this disappointment. It's not just an event, it works its way into your psyche. You, you become one who faces shame. You, you know what it's like to, to, to pull back into the shadows, into hiding. Maybe you experience a sense of alienation or injustice. It impacts upon your self-worth, your identity, your sense of worthiness. I mean, take a job loss or financial crisis. How many people who've lost their job lose their sense of purpose and place in the world? the professional world certainly, or, or anxiety, feelings of inadequacy and potential depression, or um, the sense of social withdrawal. What about trauma and abuse? It can fracture your sense of self and safety, leading to self-blame or shame, anxiety, depression, hypervigilance, flashbacks, and difficulty trusting others ensues, isolation, difficulty in forming and maintaining relationships, and again, social withdrawal, that noise okay <laughs> okay well we accept the noise discrimination or prejudice discrimination or prejudice um, one that I have not experienced much in my life but um, but I speak to people whose lives have been utterly broken by discrimination and prejudice I wrote a book, um, How God Sees Women, and it's done quite well around the world. And I get emails about once, sometimes twice a week from people around the world who then tell me their story of 
devastation by the doctrine that excludes women or subordinates women. And uh, one particular story, she, she compared this a little to the feeling of what she experienced. She lives in England now, she's a journalist, of what she experienced in South Africa. She, she wrote to me, she writes this, this. She says, like you, I grew up in South Africa. When I was about 12, my sister won a pair of cinema tickets in a newspaper competition. We'd only been to the cinema once before, so we were really excited. When we got there, we were called into the manager's office and he told us he couldn't allow us in because we were Indian. Apparently, my sister was not supposed to have won those tickets. I guess she won them because her name is Beverly and our surname is Joshua. We left with our tails between our legs. The worst thing about apartheid is that it left us feeling ashamed of ourselves and the color of our skin. Another thing it did, it made me reject God. I saw God as the God of apartheid. I wanted nothing to do with that God. Fortunately, God didn't let me go. She then told me the movie that they went to watch, the story of Gandhi, which is the story of a man who's investigating Christianity and goes to a church to hear a, a friend who's a preacher preach and gets ejected from the, doesn't get in because the deacons won't let him in. Tragedy of a story retold. Because I wrote the book on the subject, for whatever reason, these stories keep coming to me of women who experience um, the inferiority that often goes with the experience of a woman. And um, the Christian church sometimes not helping the matter with quite stridently holding on to a doctrine of female subordination. And uh, most people don't seem to mind it and most people don't seem to get affected, but some certainly do. They feel like they're less than a man. And that idea that God sees you as less than your brother, it can can have a grinding down experience. I mean, South Africa is a sad story of many people being dropped. I've done some work um, in content creation for this education company, and I've got to go to some high schools in South Africa, and I went to this one school where there's one grade that are, are going through the special program, and I was in this classroom watching these kids so engaged in the learning experience, beautiful and loving education for the first time, in a sense. And then I walked out with the people that were hosting me, and they said, now we're gonna show you the other classes. And this particular school is known for its quality education relative to a lot of government schools. And we went from class to class, and the kids were just walking around, went into one class, and the kids are all on their phones, chatting in groups. And then my friend walks in and finds the teacher sitting at the desk. She's also on her phone, and he says, hour and a half into the class, and he says, what's happening here? Uh, what, what are you teaching? And she fumbles through some papers, and she holds something up, and she, wrap, she, she reads awkwardly off the piece of paper. Then he explained to me, he says, Taryn, this is one of the best schools. He says, you should go to the other schools. You got, and then he said this to me, he says, the education system is a crime against humanity. And um, I just think about how many, how many people are being dropped uh, you, you face shame when you get a setback like that. You give 12 years of your life to education and you get this dismal experience. I'm not trying to get you depressed because the people that were hosting me are doing really good work and it makes you go, goodness, we've got we to find ways to improve the system. I'm illustrating the point that the experience of Mephibosheth is one we all can identify with, whether systemically or personally, and I think 
it's, it's the gospel that has got unique um, resources to speak to the experience of, of loss and shame and being diminished by experiences that come your way. So the, the story's about to get a little happier. Here we go. 2 Samuel 9. Jump forward 15 years in Mephibosheth's story. In 2 Samuel 9, the new king David remembers that he once swore to Jonathan that he would bless anyone who's in Jonathan's family. And as far as he knows, Jonathan didn't have any kids, so he sends out an inquiry. Did Jonathan have any children? Anybody know? Because he wants to show this, these people kindness for Jonathan's sake. Upon hearing about the young man, he summons Mephibosheth. And he says to him, don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. You will always eat at my table. I'll read it again. Don't be afraid, because by the way, um, if you are a biological descendant of a previous king, then the new king should kill you, because you're a threat to that king. Don't be afraid. I haven't summoned you here to kill you. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. You will always eat at my table three ways that the gospel redefines your life. Three things that the gospel gives to you and becomes so sweet if you have had the experience of Mephibosheth is this. Number one, an identity as a prince or a princess. Number two, an invitation to the king's table. And number three, inheritance in the land. Three things the gospel gives you, which is the reason we sing. It's, it's, it's the message we have to a world where loss and pain and shame are the name of the game. Identity, invitation, inheritance. Identity as a prince all along Mephibosheth. He has lived in disgrace. Meanwhile, he is in Jonathan. A promise has been made from David to Jonathan that I will treat your children as my own. This is an analogy for those of us who are in Christ. It doesn't matter what hardships have come your way. It doesn't matter what people have thought about you or what others have concluded about you. What counts is what God thinks about you. What counts is what promise God has made over your life. And if you are in Christ, then there's no need to be in the, sh the shadows as David did for the young prince, so God does for us once we place our faith in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse, 10, 2 verse 7, he gives us the riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Life, society, people may not always be kind to you, but you can rejoice in God's generosity to you. You are the king's kid. Identity as a prince or a princess. I remember going to Heart Bay Market when Julie and I, I think we just had our third kid and it was our first outing. We go to the Heart Bay Market on a Friday, the yeah, first time, and uh, it's crazy. What were we thinking? <laughs> we get there and the place is packed and there's no places at any tables. None at all, but we've got to get food, you've got three kids, and... Um, and, and, and I put Ivy in the little basket, whatever the thing is. You think I know what it is by this time, that thing. <laughs> put the thing on the table with the baby in. <coughs> I really don't know what the thing's called. 
car seat. Now wonder, hey, what's the car seat? The, the car seat. <coughs> the car seat. Piccolo. <coughs> and anyway, there is one place at a table. <coughs> I'm about to sit down. And then I, I notice everyone's at the table, they're sitting there to eat. But um, there's one person who clearly is a very poor person who doesn't seem to know anyone who's sitting at the table. And um, I remember thinking to myself, she doesn't need to be sitting at the table because she she's not eating. And I hope she moves because, goodness, we just need some place. I'm sorry. Those are my honest thoughts. And I sit down and I put Ivy in front of me, and I look into Ivy's little face, and I say, you're my princess. And then the Spirit of God speaks to me. And he says, and this is mine. And I lift up my eyes to this older woman, missing teeth, sitting across the table. Such a shocking experience. The difference between I'd seen this woman and in that moment, God gave me a glimpse. This is my, and this is mine. So, I think I've got to tell her something. I've got to encourage her. She's been brave to come to this market. God loves her so much, I have a sudden insight into this moment. So, I walk around to her, and I go, hi. And um, I say, my name's Taryn. I said, I'm, I'm sitting here, and I just felt God say that you're his princess, and, and the first time I, I look in her eyes, and they are beautiful. There's light in her eyes. And I say, you are, you are God's princess, and he loves you, and, and you're beautiful. And she goes, I know. <laughs> Doesn't matter what society says about you. doesn't matter what others have said about you. What matters is what God thinks when he sees you. What matters is what God thinks when he sees you. So there's this identity as a prince or a princess. Then there's the invitation to the table. How shocking was my treatment of that woman? I hope she'd leave the table so that my family could sit at the table. I didn't treat her, that was my shocking was my thought. There's a place for us at the royal table. When circumstances overwhelm us, we can thank God. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Luke 22, Jesus says, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. I love that picture of a table because it's right at the heart. It's, Jesus uses it so many times in the parables. There's a place for you at the table in the gospel. The head of the table is the king. You sit at the table like one of the king's kids. And it's a picture of, of how the church should also be a table where we welcome people to sit at the table. All kinds of people, different from ourselves. Welcome at this table. And um, I love this picture because it also speaks to my own experience because Mephibosheth 
once sat at a table, and you get the feeling that he's no longer at any table until the king says, every evening you come have dinner with me. You eat the royal food. And um, that picture of being retabled. So I wonder if any of you had the experience of once sitting at a table and then something happens and you are no longer welcome at that table and the pain. Oh, you tell yourself, good riddance. Something that's so um, innate to human nature. Just somebody, let me sit at their table. And then when a bunch of people say, no, no longer. It hurts. It cuts deep. Um, my previous church, I served there for 20 years. The first 17 years, I was happy as a pig in mud, loved every day. The last three years, um, a lot of pain. And uh, we did our best to try to hold the relationships together. But by the end, I left and I felt I'd been detabled. It was the most psychologically excruciating experience of my life. I could hardly cope with the pain. I would lie awake in the night in pain, feeling the pain going through my body, going through my mind. Now, that church is a wonderful church. Nobody did, nobody did detable me. You know, this is just the realities of life when relationships come undone and we go our separate ways. So I'm, please don't hear that I'm saying anything bad about that other church. It's a fantastic church. But my experience was excruciating. And I remember thinking, dang, I can never do community again because I gave my altar community and the thing utterly broke me. And I, for a year and a half between churches, did my best to heal up. Went to therapy, I wrote in the journal, and I tried to heal. I tried to heal. And then I remember coming to a point where somebody said to me, you know, for you to get healing, you're gonna have to find another community, which sounded terrifying. I'm so glad they said it, because there was a community for me. And it was one I couldn't have known until I wandered into Signal two years ago. And it wasn't this, the community I'd pictured for myself. It wasn't the table I'd imagined for myself. But looking back, it was the table that God brought me to. And whatever pain came in the earlier community pain, healings come in this community. And, um, <laughs> and I'm not saying that that means that there'll be no pain in community because people bring pain. Christian people bring pain. Non-Christian people bring pain. Just get, get with any group of people long enough, pain. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm not saying that Signal is gonna be pain-free for me or pain-free for you, but what I am saying is if this is your community, there's place for you at the table. And I pray you have the healing and the happiness that comes from finding a table. Because, because I think we need, to, we need each other's help to get God's identity into ourselves. We actually need other people to remind you that you're not acting like a king's kid. We need to call each other out. We need to call each other in. So there's this invitation at the table and um, 
we don't do a heavy, hey guys, if you come to Signal, you must go to a small group. But we do strongly encourage you, not because we're trying to control you, but just because Sundays can take you so far in connectedness, but there's something about getting into the homes of some people where you go, ah, I found my table, I found my peeps. Just this week, I spoke to someone who's been in the church as long as me, and she said, you know, I've been coming to Signal. The meetings are so exciting. God is there. And she says, and then after I have a couple awkward conversations and go home, wondering if I really belong in the church. She says, this has been her feeling for two years until the last week she went to her first ever nightclub, two weeks ago. Then, then she came back to church the next Sunday. Ha! She knows she's got her peeps now. And she says, I feel like I belong. That's why we encourage nightclubs. Not because we're trying to control you, not because we're gonna try and take your busy life and make it busier, <laughs> just because of the, the importance of sitting at a table and knowing some people who know you, you can share your story with. And then finally, inheritance in the land. He, he gets given land. He gets given land. Not literal, but spiritual property we get in Christ. Paul speaks to the Ephesian Christians about the word of God's grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. The point is that each of us has a crucial part to play in the people of God and in the mission of God. You get an inheritance. You, you don't just get God and a people. You get to uh, be part of a bunch of people pushing back the darkness. You get to... Uh, discover your unique contribution. You get to find out why you are not Mephibosheth. You don't face shame. You are Mary Bowl, one who contends with the false gods, one who pushes back the darkness, one who brings light into other people's lives, one who brings light into desperate situations, one who brings light into your industry, whatever it is. What's quite remarkable is what Mephibosheth says after David gives him this profound identity, invitation, and inheritance um, offer. How does Mephibosheth respond to David's invitation? He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? It's not gonna be easy to, to get this guy to believe he is who David says he is. He is so emotionally attached to his identity of inferiority. It's gonna take a long battle to get this guy unhitched from that sense of crippling unworthiness and shame. In fact, the rest of the, the story in Mephibosheth reads tragically. In 2 Samuel 16, Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, eyes out Mephibosheth's property and tells a lie to King David about Mephibosheth saying that he's a traitor. And David, obviously not perfectly representing Jesus, believes Ziba's lie and says, Ziba, you take Mephibosheth's land. Then in 2 Samuel 19, David comes back and Mephibosheth, here we go, Saul's grandson, went out to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. In other words, David realizes it was a lie. In a strange act of judgment, Ziba, the lie, still keeps half the land. 
what does Mishibosheth do? The last word of him in the Bible, let Ziba take everything. Here's a man who cannot receive the identity that the king is bestowing upon him. He just can't. He just can't stop believing the thoughts in his head that he is less than, that he's unworthy. I suppose the story comes as a warning. It's not enough just to sit in Sunday after Sunday for the next few months hearing about your identity in Christ. What you need to do is actually believe it. Actually use these truths to preach the gospel to yourself. Because nobody speaks to you about you more than you. What would happen if you were actively agree with God's word that you are who the gospel says you are? You are the one who Jesus, the son of David, says you are. Because we are in a tug of war between our brokenness and the gospel. Between the things people say about us and the gospel. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you stand up? Can um, Neil and Dan come to the stage? And the first thing, so if you are new to church or back in church after a long time, maybe you don't believe in Jesus or you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, step one for you, believe in Jesus. Step one for you, believe in Jesus. And the invitation of Jesus is, come on in, there's a place for you at the table. There's a place for you at the table. Jesus has paid the price for your sins on the cross. Jesus risen again from the dead. Jesus has his eyes on you on the, and they are eyes of love. It's not a coincidence that you find yourselves here today. So I'm echoing the invitation of Jesus. Come on in. Come on into the kingdom. Come on, take your place at the table. Come, trust in Jesus. Come, come trust in Jesus. And if that's you, I wanna urge you here and now just to do that. Right where you are, place your faith in Jesus. I can guide you in a simple prayer, how I did it when I was 16 years old. Prayed a simple prayer. I'll give you some words. You can pray it under your breath after me. God, thank you that you love me. Can you say that under your breath? God, thank you that you love me. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. Can you say that? Please forgive me. Jesus, thank you that you rose again from the dead. You're alive. Come and live in me by your spirit. Take me into your kingdom. Take me into your family. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to follow you. And if that is your prayer today, I just want to celebrate. Yeah. Welcome. Make yourself at home. And then for the rest of us, we've got a little bit of time left. Dave is going to help us. But we want to pray for people. Something in this message has really spoken to you. Maybe that was enough. Maybe you got, you got what you need. You can, you can leave and you can take that with you. But maybe just having somebody pray with you now, that could, that could really cement what's happening in your life this moment. Maybe this message surfaced a, 
readiness to be vulnerable with God. Why don't you come up and receive prayer? That vulnerable place with God, it's just a sweet spot where God is able to bring a lot of healing and strength into your life.